This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 273. Today we speak with Dr. William Edgar about Francis Schaeffer's spirituality. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is now episode number 273. My name is Camden Busey. I'm recording from Wheaton, Illinois, a nice snowy day. Uh, delighted to have a number of people with me. Let me introduce to you our panel. We have Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. He's also a candidate uh, for the Ph.D. in Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Jim. It's great to have you. It's good to be here, Camden. You guys keep that snow. Yeah, we will. <laughs> I think we're supposed to get some more of it. But you're coming out to visit me uh, in several weeks, so maybe the snow will be melted by then. I hope so. Okay, we'll see. Uh, Jim is doing some great work on uh, Karl Barth uh, in historical and theological studies, so we hope to... Um, uh, see him graduate, receive his degree, uh, probably in May, if he gets it all done. And uh, it's a race to the finish. We'll see if Jim and I can walk together. Uh, it would be something else if we were able to do that. And seeing that I'm Busey and you're Cassidy, we might be able to sit next to each other even. We'll have to see. Uh, but you're further along than I. Uh, we have also with us today Jared Oliphant, who is regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary, although he works for Westminster in Philadelphia. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina, becoming quite the uh, national traveler. We have with us Jared Oliphant. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you. Thanks, Gandon. Good to be on with you guys. Yeah, uh, we're very pleased to have you with us, uh, as well as both of you guys, um, to bring your expertise to the table as we ask questions of our guest. We're so delighted and, and blessed to have with us, uh, for the first time, Dr. William Edgar, who is Professor of Apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the program, Dr. Edgar. It's great to speak with you. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Um, very uh, fond of the subject, and um, glad you're um, taking an interest in it as well. Yeah. We have before us a new book uh, published by Crossway uh, titled Schaefer on the Christian Life, Countercultural Spirituality. Uh, Dr. Edgar has had uh, much experience with uh, Francis Schaefer, um, having spent time at Labrie, um, and also do, uh, Dr. Edgar having worked um, at Westminster for quite some time uh, developing a presuppositional apologetic and, and uh, teaching and uh, connecting uh, Christianity and apologetics to culture and all sorts of things. Of course, we're in the milieu. I'm going to throw my French words in here for Dr. Edgar since uh, <laughs> he's uh, fluent. And also I took French from his wife, Barbara. Uh, so I need to demonstrate that I actually learned something. Um, but we are very excited to speak about this topic and an important one at that, thinking about Francis Schaeffer, his life, and uh, his spirituality. Uh, but before we get started, I do want to mention uh, a couple of announcements, and I believe uh, being conference season, we have a few things to mention. I'll start with you, Jared. Uh, what do we have in line for us in April? Yeah, sure. I'll just mention a couple things. Um, April 5th through 6th is the uh, Westminster Conference on Science and Faith, and... Um 
there there's going to be a few speakers. Uh, John Lennox is speaking. Steve Meyer is speaking. Um, and then a couple of Westminster professors, uh, Dr. Vernon Poitras, and then uh, another guy, Scott Oliphant. And uh, so, so look for that. Um, there's information on Westminster's website if you want to um, get more info on the where and when and how much and all that kind of stuff. They have a Facebook page too. So mm-hmm. anyway, if you search uh, Westminster Science and Faith Conference, you'll find it. Um, and then right after that, you're right, it is conference season. April 8th through 10th, uh, Westminster, myself included, and Jonathan Brack and um, CCF, actually, a couple guys from there, will be down at the Gospel Coalition Conference again in Orlando. And that's April 8th through 10th. So, um, yeah, look for us there. If you're um, at either one of those things, say, hey, I won't be at the Science and Faith, but definitely the Gospel Coalition one. Mm. So, yeah, stop by. I would love to say hey. And, Jim, we have also the PCRT. Yeah, PCRT coming up in April, April 19th to the 21st, and it looks like it's going to be a good one again this year. Uh, The topic is going to be in the beginning, God, Adam, and you, uh, addressing, of course, the issues of historical Adam, which are once again uh, at the forefront of discussions in Reformed theology as well as in broader evangelical theology. Um, We are also going to, uh, well, the conference, the pre-conference will include uh, John Payne um, and Rick Phillips, and then during the conference itself, we'll have Derek Thomas, Joel Beakey, Kevin DeYoung, uh, again, Rick Phillips, and um, others. So it looks like it's going to be a really good conference this year. Uh, Jeff and I are expected to be at this one. At least I'll be there on at the Saturday sessions. Um, so uh, looking forward to perhaps meeting some of our listeners, and uh, we'd love to um, hook up and, and make some connections out there. So um, mark it down on your calendar, April 19th to the 21st, and uh, looking forward to it. Great. Well, thanks, Jim. And we always have a good time at the Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology down there at 10th uh, Prez. I'm sad I'm not going to be able to be there this time, but uh, perhaps next year. Uh, So you can connect with uh, Jim and Jeff. And also, if you're going to be down in Orlando, uh, you can connect with Jared or at Westminster for the Science and Faith Seminar. You can even connect with Dr. Edgar, who will be around. Um, before we get into our subject, I do need to mention uh, that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our partners, both prayerful and financial. We encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate today to pledge your support. We are in need, um, again, with my transition full-time into pastoral ministry. I'm going to be out on my own at the end of April, uh, of course, with the support of a church, but in terms of the pastoral staff, I'm not going to be able to devote as much time to the week-to-week activities of editing and all that. So we'd like to um, bring some people on board to help us with our daily activities. So please uh, visit us online and help us out. Uh, we need to move into the next uh, stage of Reform Forum's life, and we encourage you to visit us and to partner with us today. We thank you so much for all of your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum in this particular program, Christ the Center. Now, I was so excited to see this book uh, here coming out from Crossway. Uh, Dr. Edgar, the one you've written here, Schaefer on the Christian Life, Countercultural Spirituality. Before we dive into uh, the book, uh, there is a, a large biographical section here when you describe uh, Francis Schaefer's life and, and his great influence on so many Christians. But there's also uh, just kind of a personal reflection at the beginning, which I thought was so useful is so warm as well. Could you introduce our listeners to Francis Schaeffer just through your own personal experience here to begin uh, before we get into some of his uh, actual thinking on, on spirituality? Sure, I'll, I'll try. Um, I was 
at Harvard University, um, sometimes an atheist, at, often an agnostic about anything uh, uh, relating to the Christian faith. And I had a section instructor in one of my courses who was a Christian, wonderful man who's gone to be with the Lord now, uh, but who presented Christianity as a viable alternative to Greek and modernist thought. And he did it in a very convincing and winsome way, not using the classroom as a you know pulpit, but just uh, by way of intellectual history. And so I was very, very taken with this. I'd never heard anything remotely like it. And we got to be friends. And um, towards the spring of my sophomore year, he suggested that I go visit a friend of his named Francis Schaefer. Uh, I was going to Europe with my brother anyway. And I said, okay. So I wrote down the name and the phone number, I guess. Um, and got to Zurich. My brother wanted to go back to the States. I wanted to stay. And I thought, gosh, maybe this would be a good time to meet this friend of, of Joe Brown's. And so I called him and got Mrs. Schaefer on the phone. And she was so warm. Uh, she said, why don't you come and stay for the weekend? I thought this is kind of interesting for somebody who doesn't <laughs> know me. Um, but, you know, it was the 60s. I had a knapsack on my back, and I was up for, you know, uh, excellent adventure. So I took the train down there and um, got to a little village called Raymond sur olon which is halfway up the mountain to Villars from uh, the Lake Geneva. And uh, what did I find? But a, a small community of 20, 25 people, um, many of them young people like myself who were seeking or were inquiring. Some, a few were already Christians. And um, and then I met Francis Schaefer. He was in his early 50s, um, had the most warm, uh, winsome face, very um, gracious. You could tell from looking at his eyes, though, that he'd been through a lot. Mm. And um, so we became kind of cordial. And then that night we had a discussion group. And what they called discussion was somebody would ask a question and he would kind of spin off a <laughs> half an hour answer. But um, it was on prayer. And uh, I'll never forget it. I had no idea. Well, I had been to a boarding school, an Episcopal boarding school. So we had prayers every day. So I knew what prayer was, but um, had never tried it or knew any detail about it. So it was a riveting discussion. Um, and the next day, we had a church service in the living room of this great chalet. And they moved the furniture around. And uh, his son-in-law, Randall McCauley, preached a sermon on Paul and James standing in, in his Macaulay kilt. And uh, for about an hour and a half, he explained the problem and explained the resolution. And uh, instead of, you know, cynically thinking, well, I'm happy this is interesting for you. I was, I was really quite taken by all of this, didn't understand a lot of it, but, um, and then the, what happened next was I had a private talk with Francis Schaefer for a couple of hours just before lunch. Um, and it was in that conversation that I realized Christianity was true, not just intellectually, but I needed to commit to it. And so he led me to Christ and we, uh, prayed together. I'd never done that. Um, I said, well, what do I say? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, why don't you start with thank you? Because, yeah. you know, so I was I was so moved, and we were both um, praying for friends that we had in common. And that's how I met him, and that's how I began my, my Christian life. That, that was in 1964, and I'm still uh, very, very uh, adamant about the Christian faith and have grown a little bit since those days, but struggling with sin like anybody else. Um, 
so I'm, I will be eternally grateful for God's instrument in leading me to faith, Francis Schaeffer. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. There's, there's one example or uh, anecdote you provide early on in the book where you're listening to this lecture. I believe it was on uh, continental philosophy. And it's something that you had apparently studied and knew something about. Uh, what was most striking to you about hearing somebody speak about something you were familiar with at that time? Yeah, that was a funny incident. You, you know, um, the, my very first day at Labrie, they invited me into the living room with a bunch of other people, and we were to take peas out of their pods for Sunday lunch. So I was fine, you know, I I could do that. Um, and um, we listened to this tape, and I thought it was a woman speaking about <laughs> uh, existentialism. It was rather articulate. I I had fancied myself an existentialist, and I was pretty much agreeing with this lady, and um uh it was you know quite riveting really and so after it was over it turns out it was Schaefer um he had a high voice anyway but the reel to reel uh, tape recorder made it even more shrill and um and he you know he had learning disabilities so he, he kept calling him Kirkigar <laughs> and he, he had uh, other ways to uh, mix up names um and uh, we kind of thought it was pretty funny. I don't think he thought it was funny when he no. was a little guy struggling with all this. But, um, you know, he, he kind of said that Kierkegaard represented what he called existentialist methodology, an expression he used over and over again, to refer to um, giving up on rational analysis and what he's called leaping upstairs to the upper story where you didn't have to use rationality and where contradictions were just fine and we didn't have absolutes. Um, later, in, he would have refined his views on Kierkegaard because, um, you know, Kierkegaard scholars recognize that uh, it's much too simple to say that he was the father of existentialism or that he advocated a, a leap upstairs. Um, he, he wasn't as clear as we'd like him to be about faith. And um, you could get the impression on a superficial reading of him that he was an irrationalist. But um, anyway, that being as it may, the analysis was brilliant and the names he used. Uh, and as somebody who had spent a lot of his life thinking about, um, especially the French existentialists, I rather agreed with um, with him and, and was looking forward to uh, discussing some of that with him. And, you know, in the years to come, I would have had plenty of opportunity to go deeper into all of that. So that, yeah, that was uh, my first introduction to his thinking was on a tape where I thought he was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, Dr. Eric, I had uh, a question. Again, this isn't directly in the book, but thought it would be relevant just for our discussions that I'm I want to refer to the 1995 Westminster Journal article that you did um, comparing Van Til and Francis Schaeffer, and highly recommend this article for anyone. Um, you know, you had both, you learned from both, and um, you you include some anecdotes. I was just wondering; it's been almost 20 years since that article came out. Do you have any reflections on um, the article itself, how it was received? Um, again, kind of you know, a couple decades out, reflecting back on both of your former teachers. Any, any thoughts on that? Mm. I basically still agree with myself, <laughs> but um, I, <laughs> think, <me> too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think what I tried to do in that uh, article was to show the strengths and possible weaknesses of both. Uh, Van Til was definitely the stronger uh, systematic theologian and philosopher 
And his concerns over Schaefer, I think, had some real merit. Um, Schaefer was not a professional philosopher. He was a kind of shoot-from-the-hip guy. And um, some of his statements, particularly if taken out of context, uh, would make him sound like a rationalist um, and make him sound a bit like an evidentialist and so forth. And Ventil was very concerned um, that what Schaefer used in his method, uh, particularly his view of the nature of proof and that sort of thing, was not uh, fully consistent with the presuppositionalism that he claimed he was uh, speaking from. So uh, on the other side, I think Ventil missed, or at least in this, in what I've read, missed a bit of the amazing ability that Schaefer had to answer the question behind the question and to push people gently to be more consistent with their unbelief in order to show them how dark it was when you're consistent as an unbeliever. So it's a method that Van Til himself heartily espouses and um, I think Schaefer got it from Van Til because he studied with him at Westminster. And uh, I was I was a little disappointed that um, Van Til didn't um, wasn't a little more generous, uh, you know, with with Schaefer um, about some of those things, albeit his criticism was was right. Um, you know, I think he could have tried harder to recognize that Schaefer, in in some ways, was was really his uh, his child. And then Schaefer, on his side, um, you know, some, when they met, they met a couple of times. Um, he always thought Van Til was too much tied into the classroom and, you know, that he, Francis Schaefer, was out there on the turf and dealing with real life people. Again, not very generous because Van Til was, was a, a real people person, um, marvelous preacher. He, he used to go around his uh, part of town and walk around the block and try to evangelize his neighbors. And so they, they kind of spoke past each other. These were strong personalities, both contributed enormously to apologetics and to um, the credibility of the gospel. And um, I think they were closer th- than they thought they were, but, uh, you know, s- sometimes these great people can't, um, you know, can't pause to just be a little bit more generous. Um, so having said that, I learned enormously from both, and I guess philosophically and theologically, I would be a Vantillian. But in a in a lot of practical ways, Schaefer, I hear the voice of Schaefer when I'm talking to an unbeliever, uh, sort of whispering to me what to say next. Um, so, yeah, I learned a lot from both, and I'm grateful that I had the privilege of knowing both of them extremely well. You mentioned not only if Schaefer and Van Til come together at, throughout history at various times. Uh, one anecdote you mentioned also is this time Dr. Clowney tried to bring them together when Schaefer mm-hmm. was on campus, but they're their paths crossed even much earlier. Could you talk a little bit about uh, Schaefer's um, personal history uh, back in the 30s, his relationship to the OPC, the Bible Presbyterians, Westminster, etc.? How um, how was Schaefer bound up with some of the yeah. uh, the big shifts going on in Presbyterianism in that decade? Well, uh, Francis Schaefer would live to regret some of this, but when he was at Westminster... He and his wife, Edith, were extremely taken by J. Gresham Machen. And when Machen died prematurely, um, several Westminster students and a couple of leaders in the new seminary and um, then in, the, in some of the, the, the new churches that were developed after the uh, 
pluralist church began to really go downhill, uh, were critical of each other. Uh, one of them, uh, led by people like Carl McIntyre, which eventually led to the Bible Presbyterian Church and, an, and another seminary in, in Delaware, uh, was uh, very, very exercised about what they perceived to be the lack of, of consistent Christian living in some of the other members of the faculty um, who were then with the nascent uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And the two issues that they felt most strongly about, and Schaefer was with them on this, were uh, a premillennial reading of the book of Revelation, uh, not dispensational, but historic premillennialism. And they felt that if you didn't see that in the text and you didn't exegete the scripture with that eschatology, uh, you were in principle ready to throw everything overboard and call everything symbolic and so mm -hmm. forth. And then the other was uh, what they used to call the Christian liberties, Whereas uh, Christians might be free uh, to refrain from smoking or to enjoy smoking, drinking, dancing, gambling, and being in a theater, it's better to abstain uh, because the world was so full of decadence that it helped your testimony if you uh, pledged to stop smoking, drinking, gambling, and so on. And again, Schaefer was a, a very strong part of that movement. He became the first ordained pastor in the Bible Presbyterian Church. He finished seminary at Faith, the other uh, one that was created by uh, McRae and, and McIntyre and so on. And then he spent a, about 10 years in the pastorate, very successful pastorates in, in that denomination. And it was the Bible Presbyterian denomination and an international mission that uh, McIntyre helped to found that actually sent Schaefer over to Europe. Eventually, however, and, and well, you asked about Van Til crossing paths. Van Til would have been in the group that Schaefer and McRae and others criticized yeah. uh, for the, you know, on these two fronts. Plus, um, a fellow named J. Oliver Buswell, um, oh, yes. who was a professor at the New Seminary and also president of Wheaton, um, had doubts about Van Til's version of presuppositionalism, and uh, Schaefer rather sided with Buswell on some of those things. So um, they they knew each other. I, I think Schaefer got more, much more out of Van Til than he would later admit, but um, he he crossed paths early with him on 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 these things. Uh, Edith writes in her long uh, bio autobiography, the Tapestry that they felt that there was coldness and infighting and um, kind of an arrogant spirit at Westminster. Uh, of course, I wasn't there at the time. Um, I was born uh, 10 years later and, you know, wouldn't have known it anyway. But is the criticism fair? Was there some of that? Uh, I don't know. And then, as I said la later, um, in fact, the founding of Labrie very much depends on this. Schaefer had a spiritual crisis which I write about in the book. And in the crisis, he comes to the realization that while he might have been right and his fellows in what they used to call the movement might have been right in terms of doctrine and the purity of the church, there was a palpable lack of love and of charity. And um, so he broke with uh, both the church and the mission and uh, he, he joined a, um, a group that 
formed out of the Bible Presbyterian Church called the Reformed Presbyterians Evangelical Synod. And um, Labrie became an independent mission, a faith mission. And so the spiritual crisis of recognizing that he had lacked love is what he would tell you is behind um, the power of, of Labrie. Mm. And th- that's one of the reasons I think I was willing to write this book. You know, he's um, in a series with, you know, Luther, Calvin, um, Bonhoeffer, and, and all these amazing giants. And I, at first I thought, is he really in that category? Um, and then I realized, I think he really was because of this unique entrance into his apologetics being through a, a crisis uh, of realization of, of lack of love. And so I'm gl- I was just glad to write it. And the series focuses on these men and their view of the Christian life. That's what's unique about the series. These aren't yeah. biographies. You know, there's one on Warfield. There's one on... And, um, and I thought, nobody's really done this, astonishing as that may seem. I, uh, nobody's written on what he considered to be the real key uh, to his ministry. So It's a, it's a lot more common in, in the Catholic sphere uh, to write these kind of spiritual memoirs yeah. or spiritual biographies. And my, my subject to study, Carl Rahner, has a number on the subject. Uh, people have written some on C.S. Lewis, but it, that's what's really tr- unique about this book. In mm. fact, you, you in, up front in the preface, uh, said that when you were asked to write the book, you initially declined. <laughs> That's right. But, for, the, um, for the reason I was saying. Yeah, you know, exactly. I wasn't but, sure he was. And I also thought that so much has been written about him. Um, but then I turned around and thought, wait, wait a minute, nobody has really written about his view of the Christian life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dr. Egger, would you be able to um, fill us in a little bit more about Libri. Um, you you uh, mentioned that it's it, it was initially a uh, a mission outreach. Would you be able to fill us in maybe at some of the dates? Uh, how, what was the thinking about the mission itself? Was it with a view towards establishing uh, churches? Uh, to, tell us a little bit more about the history of Libri. Sure. Well, um, the Shapers went over to Europe uh, just after the war. They had always been burdened for the churches of Europe, and uh, they had a special love for the Jews who had had such a horrendous experience um, because of the Nazis. And so their first idea was to go over and help Sunday school programs in the churches to avert the twin dangers of liberalism on the one hand and neo-orthodoxy on the other hand. And after a series of adventures, which uh, I think I recount a lot of them in the book, but you can find them out in other places as well, uh, they began to see their real witness was to uh, high school and college age and even older people who came with questions about almost everything relating to faith. And um, they, uh, at one point, led the head of the power company of uh, the, the, the town in, in the valley where they had been located uh, called uh, Champery. And um, they got a letter. This is in uh, 1955, Valentine's Day, um, from the government saying, uh, you are uh, going to be um, sent home, extradited, uh, reasons having a religious influence on the village. And when they showed this letter, to uh, people, they said it can't be, this is Switzerland, but it was. They went to the embassy, and, and lots of wonderful providences occurred, including meeting um, 
the uh, one of the key people in the in the uh, American consulate that turned out to be his classmate in Germantown. And uh, they read the fine print, and it said, you do have to leave unless you can relocate in a Protestant canton. Um, Switzerland is divided between Protestant and Catholic states. And that goes back, you know, to the Reformation, really. Um, and so providentially, and by a series of amazing um, answers to prayer, they were able to purchase a chalet in the Vaux, which is a Protestant canton. And there they found that um, their daughter, who was at university, Priscilla, would bring students up who had questions. And uh, they spent a lot of their time just with students from the university uh, going in every which way about spiritual life, science and faith, the arts. He started a Bible study down in a cafe in Lausanne. Um, and uh, it's, that's how Labrie really began, was when they realized their ministry was an evangelistic slash apologetics ministry to whosoever would come. Uh, and they used to pray that God would bring the people of his choice, um, meaning, I mean, who else would he bring, right? But meaning um, that he was to bring people who had needs and were meant to be there to help, to, to get some help. Yeah. Then in, um, they finally broke in that same year and founded Labri, which means the shelter, uh, it comes from one of the Psalms, and they found over the years that people would just come and show up, and some of them had amazing stories. Um, one of my friends was um, searching for truth, and he was he decided to go to India, which was a very popular thing in in the 60s um, in our day. You know, go on a pilgrimage to India, and um, he met Timothy Leary there, and they they talked about life, and and then he met someone else who said, "There's this place in Switzerland where." You really feel war warm and welcome, and they, they answer your questions, uh, plus the girls are cute. <laughs> so he, I said, okay, I'm going to Labrie, and he went there, and he became a believer, and now he's an extraordinary missionary. Um, he he lives in Florida, but he has a mission to Haiti. And, um, you know, just people came from... Um, my story isn't especially dram dramatic compared to some of those stories. Yeah. And so that's how Labrie began. It's a community that welcomes uh, people who have issues and need answers or who need some spiritual help. And um, if there's been a shift uh, in the you know 50-year history, um, it's probably been that in our day, uh, in the first maybe 20 or 30 years, most of the needy people who came had intellectual issues about life, history, faith, the Bible, uh, whereas today, I think it's fair to say that maybe not all, but many, many who come have more um, emotional issues. They come from broken homes. Uh, many Christians come who have come from very difficult families, nevertheless, and who are kind of messed up, and so they, they're glad to minister to whosoever, but that's been a, a major shift, I think, over the years from people who came with kind of big heavyweight questions to those who just come with amazing brokenness and, and, and need. But yeah. Labrie's still going on today. There's 10 residential Labrie's, various degrees of um, kind of uh, strength and, and ability, depending on who's leading it. Um, but um, it's still an ongoing ministry, even though uh, Schaefer's been gone now since the 80s. 
A question, Dr. Egger, about uh, Schaefer's understanding and uh, perhaps response to uh, neo-orthodoxy. You mentioned it at the beginning of your answer to the last question. But uh, what was uh, Schaefer's response to neo-orthodoxy? Obviously, in in Europe at that time, uh, you, you basically have two options. You've got liberalism or Bardianism. Uh, you had mentioned that this was uh, Libri was a, an opportunity to um, uh, to kind of navigate between those two and, and offer another answer. But how did uh, Francis Schaeffer interact with Bart? Um, uh, not necessarily on a personal level, but uh, in terms of his understanding of the theology of Bart and uh, what was his what was his reaction to it? Yeah, well, here I think uh, the Van Til influence is very clear. Um, although Schaefer thought this through for himself, I'm sure, but he thought that uh, Bartianism or New Orthodoxy was not that different from liberalism. It was sort of the flip side of the coin, and it goes back to again what he called existentialist methodology. And in the case of Bart, he had come to the conclusion that. Whereas his words sounded orthodox, they, he called them God words, uh, if you dig deep, you would find uh, not a clear revelation from God in history, not a transition from wrath to grace in history, but a dialectical yes and no. Um, and this dialectic so colored Bart's thought that it really, for Schaefer, didn't matter that much whether. Uh, it all happened in history, whether the Bible was without error. Um, I remember Schaefer saying, you know, Bart believes there's mistakes in the Bible, but it doesn't matter because the Bible isn't the Word of God in the traditional sense um, that we understand it. And you, he said for Bart, the Bible was like a quarry, and if you dug enough, you might get some gems from it, but it, you you wouldn't be starting uh, with with the gems. And um, so his critique of Bart was, he, he thought it was not that different from liberalism, which again goes back to what he used to call existentialist methodology. Was he fair? Um, you know, there's been a lot of writing on Bart, and um, there's been writing on, on Van Til's critique of Bart, and there's, you know, a strong interest in Bart studies in places like Princeton, and you learn a lot from them. You you, you really do. Um, and um, and yet I, I I think almost no one would deny um, the basic difference um, between Van Til Schaefer on the one hand and Bart on the other hand uh, to do with accepting or not um, a dialectical framework. Um, and so I think history has pretty much vindicated uh, Francis Schaefer and. Um, Whereas Bart is being revived in lots of ways, it's attracting some of the younger evangelicals. I would urge them to revisit Bart and read him through the lens of Van Til and Schaefer and, and, and see if they're, they're not onto something. I, I, I agree with that. Um, if I could backtrack just to wee bit to the crisis um, of 1951 that you bring up in the book. Um, what is the relationship, do you think, I, and I don't know if you, I'm not sure if you address this at all in the book or if you've given thought to it, but um, what is the relationship between the crisis that he has um, and his perception of those at Westminster and perhaps uh, most prominently within the OPC 
Um, and later on, the I, I, if I have my history correct, there is an attempted merger, I believe, at one point uh, between the OPC and the RPCN, uh, not, not the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which mm-hmm. fails. And I think in part, if memory serves, uh, Schaefer had a significant part in, I think, opposing that merger. Is that is that correct, or would you be able? Yeah, to by the time the by the by the time um, he was active in those synods, the RPCES had merged with the PCA. Yes, and um, it was in a PCA assembly that Schaefer uh, got up and said, "You know, um, we really don't want to." join the OPC. Uh, His reasons were, I think he didn't, um, he didn't come out and say, these guys are kind of cold and don't reach out. But I think that was in the subtext. He also said, um, he also believed that mergers on the whole were not a a great idea. I think here, here he was still following uh, people like McIntyre who were worried about any kind of, uh, you know, merger that would, bring too much power to any one group. So while he was much more cordial to the OPC than than when I first met him, and he while he had met significant people in the OPC, such as Ed Clowney, uh, and um, and he loved E.J. Young, and, and so he had become a little bit more warm towards the denomination, he still was wary of mergers. Um, I personally think he was wrong. Um, I remember in that speech, one of the things he says, this, you know, this kind of thing could take 10 years to work out, you know, well, way te- beyond 10 years later, it would have been wonderful to join strength. Um, and to the OPC's credit, you know, many of them were worried about the PCA as being, uh, you know, good old guys and, you know, not, not particularly reformed in some details, but they, but on principle, voted to, uh, to, to merge. And then the PCA um, that had initiated all this, voted it down. Very yeah. sad episode of church history, but you're right. He had, he stayed a separatist through and through. Uh, he was critical of anybody who didn't didn't separate, and then he, he just didn't think the church needed a lot of apparatus and um, bureaucracy, and he, he was worried about these mergers, you know, giving too much power uh, mm-hmm. in a centralized place. Mm. Yeah, now... Um in light of that and and some of his own personal views and thoughts and speaking of his own personal spiritual experience um this crisis of 1951-1952 how did Schaefer um view those aspects his own personal thoughts and his own personal experience in terms of the visitors that came to Labrie did he think um his experience was normative or how did he share or communicate maybe personal aspects of his experience to to the people that came? It's something he didn't talk about very much. Um, he, uh, I don't think, was fond of re- recounting his own journey uh, the way some evangelicals love to do. Yeah. He, um, but the fruit of, of it was evident because of the combination of rigorous thinking and amazing love and outreach and compassion. The, uh, you, it was just evident in both of those areas that he had had some kind of uh, encounter that um, made him much more than a brilliant, um, you know, separated uh, theologian. Uh, so he um, 
all he's, he rightly says in in uh, his book True Spirituality and a couple of other places that Labrie was born from this crisis. But having said that, um, you just didn't hear about it very much. Uh, you, you, I think Edith writes more about it than than he ever did. Um, so you had to sort of piece the thing together. What 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 is uh, what he would talk about sometimes is that when he came to a certain place in his life, um, he he worried that he didn't have reality. That was one of his favorite words. Um, he had truth, um, but he it wasn't real. God wasn't um, a warm uh, part of his life. So he just, this is very Shaferian. He decided he would just throw everything out and start from scratch to find out whether he had made the right decision as a young man uh, to follow Christ. And he, I don't know what it looked like, but it's got to have been really difficult for for Edith, who was, who knew that if he he found out that it wasn't true, he would, you know, throw everything overboard. Um, but so he spent weeks and weeks um, walking and. When it was bad weather, and he he paced up and down in his hayloft and on their large chalet, going over and over and over the ground, and he came out of it realizing, of course it's true, and um, I did do the right thing, and he came out of it with a joy that he he didn't remember uh, since his early conversion, and it, it's out of that that this combination of orthodoxy and love that produced Labrie was was born. So. We do know that at some point he thought he was throwing everything out and starting from scratch for uh, in, for his own honesty, and uh, he emerged. Um, now, he, you know, some people would call this a second blessing. That wouldn't have fit his theology. He once told me, I think I mentioned this in the book, um, I, I'm against the theology of the second blessing, but I think I've had one. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> he, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't a Wesleyan thing, but it was... Um, you know, it was definitely a renewal that defined the rest of his life. Can you talk a little bit about um, how Schaefer understood uh, the nature of faith and uh, maybe also how that differs from Kierkegaard's own view of faith, differences and similarities? Yeah. For, for Schaefer, faith had a strong rational component. It wasn't rationalist, of course, because it's faith, it's trust. But when he described uh, what he thought Kierkegaard was doing, what he worried about was what we now call fideism, that is, accepting uh, some experience without examining it through the grid of, of uh, pro- a proper use of reason. Um, this is where Van Til got a little nervous about him, and, and it, he's not as clear as he, I think, could have been, but uh, he he believed that Christianity could be verified through the ordinary means of verification. And, you know, what that meant was historical investigation, um, weighing the evidence and that kind of thing. And that's, I think, fine as far as it goes. Where I think he could have been more careful is to to show that tools of verification aren't neutral. If you pushed him on it, he'd say, of course they're not neutral, but um, it would have been nice to have him say it more clearly because the ordinary means of verification are are not ordinarily for for everybody. Um, You know, John Locke's empiricism uh, puts a lot of trust into the human capacity to measure unaided by revelation. And while Schaefer would never have uh, wanted that, he sometimes sounded 
like he was uh, a rationalist. Now, um, having said that, for him, faith did have a rational component, and in traditional Reformed theology, um, faith has three parts, knowledge, belief, and trust, and the knowledge component is full of rationality, not rationalism, but rationality, um, and in order to believe and then to trust, um, if you don't have those elements, then of course you could be leaping in the dark. And remember, he was writing in the 60s and 70s when all kinds of people were inviting you to have a, a, a sort of irrational experience. Um, he analyzed Carl Jaspers, the, the philosopher, the German philosopher, who touted what he used to call the final experience. And um, he thought it was not linked enough with rationality. Uh, he, you know, was very critical of people who said, I've just become a Christian. And he would, he would test them and ask them, you know, he'd say, how do you know you didn't just have a, a good feeling? Or, you know, how do you know um, you just weren't enjoying the sunshine? So he, he, the rational component for him was important, but it had to be linked finally with trust. And um, when it came to that, he was a traditional evangelical. He was, he was reformed. Um, he believed that uh, the main work of Christ was the substitutionary atonement, and that unless you um, put your whole uh, sold commitment in in him as the risen lord you 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 can't be saved so that faith for him was uh was very very lively very evident very palpable but it did have this rational component which sometimes he wasn't as careful to uh delineate as he could have been hmm. how did he articulate his spirituality and and also his understanding of truth um what what did uh, Schaefer bring to the table, and how did he understand its very nature, the nature of truth? Ah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he coined the phrase "true truth" because he was he was so uh, adamant about defending objective, uh, verifiable uh, truth. He he said, while you can't reduce the Bible to propositions. There's a lot of propositional uh, truth in the Bible, and uh, he, he was afraid that neo-orthodoxy and the so-called existentialists would just read the Bible without looking at it as a series of, of revealed propositions. Um, so uh, truth was um, very, very central to his uh, apologetics, and uh, he spent his whole life worrying about what we might now call postmodernism. And that is uh, the absence of truth and the presence only of a kind of individual um, experience or commitment. Now, for the Christian life, there had to be truth everywhere. Um, if you started the Christian life without being a believer on the wrong track, instead you should start with what is true and uh, move into the Christian life after you've committed to the truth of, of, of revelation. Now, having said that, um, he, the, his insights on the Christian life are multiple. And one of the things he often used to emphasize was the difference between guilt and guilt feelings. Um, he felt that Freud and other psychologists, uh, were working with, guilt feelings, which sometimes are related to true guilt, but sometimes are just not. And so he talked about true guilt 
as not a feeling primarily, but as a an enmity with God, a culpability because of our rebellion. And uh, that's again where his objective uh, truth is a is a clear component of the Christian life because it had to uh, tell you whether you were just feeling bad or whether uh, you really were objectively guilty against God. Um, the atonement, the cross, the, the present value of the shed blood of Christ, he would talk about often, um, could only be um, empowering if uh, it, it, hap- it was true. Um, mm. So he spent a, he a lot of time describing the the reality of the of the atonement. Um, you know, I wonder. I, I remember once making he made a statement which I thought well, this is kind of strange. He said, if if you were at the foot of the cross and you'd rubbed your hand against it, you you could have gotten a splinter. And he was that was speaking. You know, you'd learn later he was speaking against um, liberalism, which saw the cross as a symbol or a spirit or of resurrection or a mythology, but didn't really happen. And I remember once he got really excited when he read the book of Acts and noticed that when Jesus appeared to Paul uh, on the Damascus Road, he spoke to him in the Hebrew language. That's what the King James says. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, well, good, you know, sure, why not? Well, he was saying, no, it was it was a, a language with grammar and syntax and vocabulary. It wasn't a mystical experience. So even though he was incredibly spiritual and um, filled with grace, all of this had to be rooted somehow in in, in reality, in the reality of, of God's truth, um, behind which there was nothing, um, you know, and that was, I think that's one of his unique contributions. The reason I call this countercultural spirituality is because he was wrestling with a culture that often didn't care about yeah. truth, and um and so ended up in false, real false spirituality. Yeah, and you you speak about also the connections he makes between the triune God of Scripture. He needs to be behind everything, and also that that's really the origins and the foundation of the biblical worldview, which goes and influences the way we think about everything in this life. There's a lot of fascinating connections there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you, you do draw out, uh, which I thought was quite interesting— was uh, Schaefer's doctrine of sin. I'm wondering if you might be able to speak a little to that. Um, sure. The doctrine of sin as it relates to the Christian's present experience and uh, situate that um, in light of Wesley and some maybe some other views that are predominant sure. out there. His view of sin, uh, again, was that it uh, it was a, a, a thoughtful, deliberate transgression, but it could also be a thoughtless omission uh, both made you truly guilty um, and not just having guilt feelings. So he talked about the uh, sin as a rebellion, sin as a turning against God, which had consequences in our relations to our neighbor. Um, it, it, it had brokenness there. It meant death in relationship to neighbor it had consequences in relation to the earth. He was very strong on ecological matters, and he believed that there was a lot of brokenness in our relations to this world. And then in our relations to ourself, uh, he, he used a lot of psychology. He was quite well-read in psychology, and he, he thought that you know what we call schizophrenia um, was a, a kind of manifestation of a divided self. Um, so he, he was very, he preached very strongly 
about the reality of, of sin. Uh, and he used to say, if you don't think you're a guilty sinner, imagine that when you're born, God ties a tape recorder around your neck. Of course, that was in the days of tape recorders. Um, <laughs> and uh, records only statements that you make that are moral affirmations. When you come up to the judgment, all he has to do is play them back and ask you, um, how did you do in relationship to your moral affirmations? And of course, all of us would be completely lost. And um, so it was, again, um, sin was a very, very real component. Uh, and, and the only possible uh, remedy is, is the atonement, the, the free gift, uh, the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the imputation to his death of my of my sin. Mm. You also speak about uh, the noetic effects of sin and, and um, also Schaefer's interaction with psychology. Perhaps we can expand on that in a, in a future discussion. We're not going to have time to get into that, I don't think, today. Um, although I do commend that section to the, to the listeners in the book. Um, but before we get going, I, I would be remiss um, if I didn't ask about prayer, especially um, just the culture of prayer at Libri. Um, how was this an outgrowth of, of Schaefer's spirituality and um, how did this influence uh, and really characterize the entire life um, at the shelter? Yeah, I think you're right to refer to a culture of prayer, because that's exactly what it was. Um, Schaefer, um, I think, got up one morning and, and, and said to Edith something like this, what if we opened our Bible today and everything about prayer and the reality of the Holy Spirit had been removed? And then he hastened to say, not as the liberals remove it, but really removed by God. What difference would it make practically in our lives that day? And they both came to the conclusion it would make precious little difference. So on the strength of that, they remedied it by uh, cultivating a a, a very, very rich, uh, consistent, insistent uh, prayer life. he had a sermon series on prayer. She wrote extensively about prayer in a couple of her books. Um, I remember at Labrie we had a, a day of prayer where um, we were we were simply to pray that day. And there was a little room. If you needed uh, subjects or you needed some isolation, you could go up to this little room, and they'd written down all the names of people that needed prayer and their requests, and they had the Bible open to different passages. And uh, it was uh, just revolutionary because... The only prayers I had done were rote prayers in my boarding school, and they prayed as though if God weren't there, it would be the most foolish thing in the world. Mm. Uh, And um, they prayed at all kinds of occasions, um, and their prayers were were conversations. Schaefer insisted on that. It's not a mystical sort of thing that you have to chant. You're speaking to God, and you should speak to Him the way you might speak to another person, except that he's God, so you worship him. Yeah, his, his own prayers were were very much like that. Um, long conversations with God, and uh, full of faith and expectation that you know it's not just empty words, but God's going to do something. That's probably what struck me the most. Um, 
about this book and, and about Schaefer's spirituality. And, and when we see somebody uh, with such a life characterized by prayer, it, it speaks volumes. And I appreciate the not only uh, what you've shared about Francis Schaefer, but the way you've shared it, um, having the personal experience. And I must say also, this is very well written. So I commend this book to the listeners again. It's Schaefer on the Christian Life, Countercultural Spirituality, published by Crossway. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Edgar. It's been such a blessing. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, Jared. Good to hear from you guys. Yeah, yeah, you too. You can find Jared online at wts.edu. does a lot of work for the seminary there, um, as well as Jim is online at calvary-mwell.org. And, of course, you can find us at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs. We have a number of them coming up. Uh, Faith of Our Fathers, Proclaiming Christ, possibly some philosophy for theologians down the road. Uh, Great thing. So visit us online and get a hold of us by sending us an email, mail at reformedforum.org. I want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.